Well, the snowpocalypse has happened. The world as we know it has come to an end. Maybe one day we'll be able to see each other in person again. But here is sermon planned for this weekend. Gather together as a family. Open up the word. Let's continue as a church in our book-by-book journey through the Bible, having arrived at Genesis chapter 40. We're studying the story of Joseph. And as I look at the story of Joseph and I look at the, the events of chapter 40, I'm compelled to share with you this, this scriptural truth. God is sovereign. And the more convinced you are of the sovereignty of God, the more able you are to remain at peace while you wait on God. Your understanding of the sovereignty of God dictates the peace or lack thereof you have in the midst of affliction. Christian, your God is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the omega and he sits on his throne in victory over everything that assails you. Know that fact that your God is in control, that he is sovereign, meaning he so reigns, meaning he reigns over things in this way. He is sovereign. Your belief in the sovereignty of God gives you peace in the midst of affliction. As we've studied the book of Genesis, we've learned about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we've arrived at Joseph. Here's the genealogy that connects from creation of God all the way to Jesus. We saw this at the end of last week's sermon and observe how it goes from God who creates. We see Noah, we see Abraham, we see Israel. This is the new name that was given to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then Joseph, his son, is the one who leads the genealogical line to David and Solomon. And from David, it forks out in branches, and we see Joseph and Mary lead to Jesus. So this bridge from Jesus, beginning at Israel, is carried through Joseph in chapter 40. There are various types of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And when, the, the, when I first heard the term Christ type or type of Christ, I, I laughed at it. I thought it was like this seminarian, uh, academia world buzzword, but It's actually trying to encapsulate what's evident in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. It's pretty pretty amazing. Actually, the idea that multiple people throughout the Old Testament would point forward to Christ is from Romans, a New Testament idea. And it begins with Adam. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Joseph is one of these types of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing to see Joseph foreshadow Christ, to see David 
foreshadow Christ, to see the, the prophecy of his son Solomon really apply to Christ, and to see all of these men of God in the Old Testament who, who strived and almost were, who spoke and ultimately would fail, all of them, all of them were foreshadowings, glimmers, glimpses, vapors, imitations of the truer, greater Christ. These men like Joseph, they would imitate Christ, but not quite. Men like David had a man after God's own heart, but he would ultimately fail. Solomon had divine wisdom and riches, but ultimately he would fall. The Old Testament prophets would speak out, but ultimately they would pass away. All of these, all of these were lesser foreshadowings of the true one, who's Jesus. Joseph's life parallels Jesus' life in obviously sovereignly orchestrated ways. Both of their ministries began at the age of 30. Look at this, look at Genesis 41, 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout the land of Egypt. Here's Luke 3, 23 and 24. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. There's two Josephs in the immediate genealogy of Jesus. Both of them beginning their ministries at the age of 30. Both were forsaken by their brothers. Both were sold out. Both were sent to Egypt. Both were later exalted, obviously Jesus in an infinitely greater extent than Joseph. Both would also ultimately become the savior of those who forsook them. Ultimately, obviously, Jesus far greater than Joseph. In fact, Jesus even ultimately being the savior of Joseph. But Joseph foreshadowed Jesus. Our small group curriculum that we use across middle school through adulthood finishes its session on verse 21 of chapter 39. And then next week's session is gonna begin in chapter 41, verse 14. So this sermon is gonna cover every verse that connects the two. Here are the final verses of chapter 39 for context to help us catch up on this Joseph guy and everything that's happened with him. Look at this. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord is sovereign. Joseph is diligent and he's hardworking, but the text is clear. The Lord is the one who makes Joseph successful. Christian, likewise, by all means, be diligent, be hardworking but acknowledge the favor of God upon your life. Don't try to take credit for what your daddy did. Acknowledge the fact that as you work hard, as you are diligent, it is the Lord who makes you successful. This is a broad section of text and the narrative can be complicated. Let's read through it and then come back and zoom in on parts of it. You're gonna see Joseph in prison interpret two of his fellow prisoners' dreams and then, in chapter 41, get called up into the big leagues. So let's look at Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with them in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it's well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is his interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. <laughs> on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged.
Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. We've just seen Joseph get called into the big leagues. We just ended on Joseph's big break, his big opportunity, his moment of deliverance by the sovereignty of God. It is possible to read the story of Joseph, and I have heard sermons on this same text misapply what's really happening here. If you are dissatisfied and anxious with your station in life, and you look at the story of Joseph and you just say, yeah, that's what I need. I just need that big moment where I'm called up to the big leagues. I just need to be given that opportunity. If you think of yourself as like this undiscovered genius, and all you really need is your big chance, and all the world will see how amazing you actually are. You've just been underappreciated, underdiscovered. If you feel like you're worthy but overlooked, and all you really need is attention and the chance and the spotlight and the big break, and then everything's going to fall into place for you, you are misinterpreting what's happening here. That is not what the story of Joseph is about. You're not an undiscovered genius. That's not the message of the, of the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is that God is sovereign. That's the story here. God is in control. God is in control. I remember when I was just busting my tail in that classic hustle to, to try to become a published author, and I would write stuff, and then I would send it to, to publishing companies and like beg them to look at it. I, I, was, I was striving so hard, I was convinced that like what I was writing was really, really good. And if people just look at it, I would get my chance. I would have my, my big break. If only they would just read what I had. I even memorized how, the, how, how some of the employee email addresses were formatted at various publishing houses. And what's so funny is that really looking back on it, Elemental to, elemental to the story is actually God humbling me, convicting me, causing me to think in the polar opposite way that I did about my writing. It was actually really important that I come to see that I was a terrible writer. My stuff wasn't that good. And I actually, in, in a painful experience that brings about self-awareness, come to see where I actually stood and how high the bar actually was for what it took to get published. It wasn't until then, it wasn't until then that I actually had the chance. And then shortly after I became a Christian author, I began receiving some of the same kind of emails that I used to send unsolicited to Christian publishers from other people who were thinking the same way that I did. That I'm an undiscovered genius and if they just give me my chance, my big break will come. No, no. No, that's not how it works at all. We live in this bizarre era where everybody's an author, but really and truly, I mean, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up in the due time. The story of Joseph is about the sovereignty of God. If you are waiting for your big break and you think of yourself as deserving but overlooked, you're going to take all the glory when your big break comes. Furthermore, your big break is less likely to come the more that you are dependent upon your own strength and your own means, your own intellect, rather than upon the glory of God, the sovereignty of God. If you are waiting for your big break and you think that it's all going to be because of your good work, 
then you're gonna give yourself all the glory instead of giving God all the glory. Don't overlook the repeated markers in the story of Joseph that God is the one who causes him to succeed. God is the one who enables him to interpret dreams. God is the one who even gives the pagan Pharaoh the dream so that Joseph can interpret it and bring about the salvation of many. Let's go back and look at this. Look at verse one. All right, I promise not to be too long with this, going back to verse one, but there's something here that seems, seems trite, but actually points to Jesus. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, their king, the, the, their king of Egypt. Can you think of any other figure in the Bible who was innocent but finds himself there with two criminals. Anyone else? Anyone? Bueller. Bueller. You see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus once again are striking. Also, also look in the first seven verses of the way that Joseph is caring for and attending to his fellow prisoners. He is loving on and caring for the people who are in prison with him, right there where he is, right there in the pit, right there in the dungeon. He is caring for these others. And one of those ends up being the key to his release. If you love the people who are right there alongside you, right, right, right there where you're at, now, those people likely will become the key to your release from the pit. You serve the Lord faithfully right where you're found. Joseph served the Lord in this pit, in this dungeon. You serve the Lord wherever you happen to be right now. Serve the Lord faithfully. Serve God. Care for those who are around you. Now, he says something in verse 8 as he interprets the first dream. When he interprets the dream for the baker, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? This is a huge statement. Okay, first let's address this. Not all dreams come from the Lord. Some dreams come from indigestion. <laughs> Some dreams come from watching too many Christopher Nolan movies. But interpretations, wisdom itself belongs to God. This is something that parents in our church have even emailed me about, concerned about, that it's coming up in some educational facilities curricula, and it sounds like pseudoscience, and it sounds almost vaguely spiritual in nature. It's true, because the enemy could use the idea of dreams to deceive. But Joseph's statement is profound. Interpretations belong to God. This is the first example in Scripture that somebody will be filled with the Holy Spirit and able to do something amazing as a result of it. Here's what Pharaoh says about him in chapter 41, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? This is the first example in scripture of somebody being filled with the spirit of God and able to do something that they wouldn't be able to do based on their own faculties. Now this is, this is pneumatological in nature. It's a study of the spirit, but it's, it's interesting. We, we see Jesus open up in the book of Acts as he tells his disciples, it's better for you if I depart, because if I don't depart, the counselor, the paraclete, paracletos, will not come down. So Jesus ascends in the opening of the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit comes down in the book of Acts, multiple occasions. The Holy Spirit comes down, and he tells us, he tells his disciples, you will receive power, and my Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So the Holy Spirit arrives in the New Testament scene in a profound way, the launch of the church. It's an, an incredible, incredible moment, but there are other glimpses of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well. For example, all the way back to creation itself, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God dwelled within Joseph, apparently. That's even observed by Pharaoh. The Spirit of God was at work in people in the Old Testament. So we see, in the Old Testament, we see glimpses of him at work, and then we see him pour out in the New Testament. So Joseph does not pretend to have special knowledge that nobody else had. That would be Gnosticism. Rather, he gives God all the credit for his ability to interpret dreams. Look at verses 14 and 15. Okay, he has faithfully served where he's at. He has become the right-hand man of the, of the one who runs this prison. He has tended to and served his fellow prisoners, looked after their needs, and even interpreted their dreams for him. And then once he's done that, he come, come, oh, once he's done that, then comes these words, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so, me get, the, so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. It's beautiful to me that he puts others first, that he thinks of others first. He serves those around him first and then this is his moment. He does in fact plead his case. He does in fact speak up. It's important to see these words because we know this, based on this statement, this description of his present circumstance, that Joseph is not delusional, all right? He's not pretending like everything's fine. He is aware of the ghastly injustice that's been done to him, that he has been forsaken by those who ought to have loved him. His own brothers have forsaken him and sold him into this situation. So he is fully aware of it. And that fact makes his conduct all the more admirable to me. If he were deluded and just totally convinced that everything's fine when it isn't, putting on a fake face, then his actions would be less impressive to me. Or if he were mentally insane and unable to fully grasp what's happening to him, his actions would be less meaningful to me. But here, instead, he acknowledges the full extent of the injustice that's been done towards him. And nonetheless, nonetheless, he serves people. So don't let Joseph be perceived as a passive victim here. He is serving God actively where he's at. He's fully aware of what's happening to him. And he does, in fact, speak up, plead his case, and maintain, maintain his innocence and his proclamation of his innocence. Now look at verse 16. He interprets this dream for the cupbearer, and then the, the chief baker wants his interpretation because the other guy's interpretation was favorable. So, he asked for an interpretation he probably shouldn't have. Can you, can you think about this for a minute? Are you likewise the, I want to hear from the Lord. I want to hear the word of the Lord. I want to hear, hear what Joseph has to say from the Lord. But only if it's favorable. Only if it's good. Are you, are you filtering what you want to hear from God? Are you hearing only what you want and you're not hearing the truth? Would you prefer to remain deluded and not really know the truth? Would you prefer that things be the way you wish 
they were, rather than as they actually are? Do you wish that the truth were something other than it is, what it is? If you're unwilling to hear truth from God, you're only willing to hear pleasantries from God, you have inadvertently become a fulfillment of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Speak to me, tell me what God says, but only if it's pleasant. If that's you, you've just stepped into a fulfillment of this truth. You've become an embodiment of what this passage prophesies. Truth is truth, whether it is convenient or not, whether it's politically correct or not, whether it's offensive or not. Prepare yourself to hear truth from the word of God and be willing to accept it because he's God. It's amazing how it's amazing how Joseph is enabled by the Spirit of God to interpret these dreams. And then two years go by between chapters 40 and 41. Did you notice that? Look at the opening verse of chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. It's interesting because this dream was prophetic. This dream was from the Lord and, and it falls upon a pagan. I mean, it's arguably, the, arguably that this, this dream was given to Pharaoh so that it would be interpreted by Joseph. But two years went by. I'm going to ask a question. You're going to know the answer to it in the first few words of it. Was God able? Was God able to give Pharaoh that dream earlier? Yes, he was. But he didn't. Why? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in the due time. God had Joseph perfectly positioned to interpret this dream. It's amazing that he was so patient. It was amazing that he was so faithful to stand, stand by the truth itself. And this is his big testing moment. He was honest and direct and forthright with his two fellow prisoners, but they had no power over him. They couldn't make life any worse for him. They were in, they were in prison along with him. But now, tune in next week, join in the small group next week, continue reading your Bible with us, and see what happens. Does Joseph have the guts to now stand before Pharaoh and give an accurate interpretation of what the Word of God says? Is, is, is he going to alter the truth? Is he going to mitigate the truth? Is he going to apologize for what God has given him by the Spirit of God to interpret this dream? Is he going to try to make it more favorable? Does he change the truth based on his audience? And do you do the same? If your truth itself is in flux based on your hearers, it's not truth. Joseph stands by what God tells him, and he stays faithful to what he knows God has indicated to him by the power of his Spirit. And he stands by the truth regardless of how it's interpreted. And then, then he's brought up out of the pit. He's called up out of the pit. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and, uh, himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now I want to address something really quick in terms of word studies. This, this English Standard Version uses the word pit. And if you're using a different Bible translation, you might see dungeon or cistern. The, the word is translated pit in the English Standard Version. It's translated dungeon in the Christian Standard Bible. And it's translated cistern elsewhere in the Old Testament. Here's that Hebrew word, bower. Here's that Hebrew word. 
all of these are accurate renderings of this Hebrew word. These are all accurate translations. That's why we see Joseph in a pit in one sense and then in a dungeon in another. And sometimes those words seem interchangeable. It's because the word is interchangeable. You can trust your English translation. I can personally attest to the accuracy of this particular rendering of the word. When I lived in Orlando to help pay off medical bills, I began drumming again and taking up gigs. And uh, there was a, a fun gig that was hosting auditions in the area, and it was to be a part of the drumline for the Orlando Magic basketball team. It was a pretty sweet gig. You'd get paid to rehearse and paid to drum. you get to perform at the Amway Center for all these fans and uh, had your own locker room with a flat screen with an Xbox on it. It was pretty nice. Showing up to the auditions was, was funny because it was sort of this usual cast of characters. I drummed at theme parks as well. You know, you'd see the same guys at, at Disney World one day and we'd be at Universal the next and SeaWorld after that. And so those same guys showed up to audition here at the Orlando Magic. And so when I first got onto the scene and became one of those guys that would just drum at the parks and drum at the, at the Magic Games, I'll never forget driving to the audition and wondering to myself, okay, I'm a pastor and I know that the gospel's got to come up at some point. So when does it come up? How do I do this? I had been kind of in the church bubble for a little bit. And it was really good for me to get out. If there's never a context for you in which you're the token Christian, you need to find a context like that. And so I was driving to this audition and I was thinking about it. I was praying to the Lord about it. Like, okay, as I show up at the audition, here's one way to do it. Show up and then kick the door down and walk in. This is an altar call. All of you come get saved now. Okay. That's one option. What are the other options? <laughs> Those of you who have heard me preach, if you've heard me preach three sermons, you probably heard the gospel six times. <laughs> but relationship evangelism is different. I was the token Christian in this group in many respects. There were many times in my drumming career where I was the only Christian in the group and many other times when I felt like I was the only Christian in the group because the other Christian or Christians kept their mouths shut and didn't say anything and lived just like the world. But I was prepared to come in and share the gospel from day one. Is it true? Those of you who know me can attest it's true. I would have been willing to do that. But what the Lord laid on my heart actually was Joseph, was this text. I thought about Joseph and how he served diligently right there where he was and the Lord lifted him up out of the pit through his love for the people who were right there alongside him. And so I resolved to be initially just that guy who was really dependable, just like Joseph was for the people who oversaw him. I was gonna be the director's most dependable guy. I was gonna show up with all of my music fully memorized, early for every rehearsal, early for every gig, staying late to break down if necessary. I was gonna be that guy that was just dependable and could perform well and, get, and play my notes and hit my dots and do my work well and earn my paycheck and drum really well and then in time, let the spirit of God work and, and speak up the gospel when, when the timing was right and that I was so blessed by how this happened. I'll never forget that the first time the spirit opened up the opportunity for me was in the locker room sitting next to one of my buddies, Leonard. My family was at the hospital at the time, living in the hospital. And Leonard's son, it turns out, had similar medical issues to my son. And so the two of us got to pray right there in the locker room in front of everybody. Now, I could tell that other people were kind of picking up on the fact that I was a Christian, not because of what I said, but in some ways because of what I didn't say. Oftentimes it was just the, the, it was the, the dearth of profanity 
and my word choice that just gave away the fact that I was a Christian. But it was pretty obvious at that point when the locker room right there became an altar and I was praying with my friend Leonard. And then, it was so amazing, over time I began to, uh, began to develop deeper friendships with these guys and I saw one of my other friends who was far from God come back to God and start coming to my church. We drummed together at the Magic Game on Saturday and then worshiped together at my church on Sunday. And then I got closer and closer to these guys. Spencer, what's up, buddy? I love you. I miss you, man. I officiated Spencer's wedding. He and, he, uh, he and his, his then fiance came to my house. And my wife and I gave them premarital counseling and officiated his wedding. He and I have stayed in touch. I prayed with him over the phone just two weeks ago. These were deep, meaningful relationships. I was able to engage guys who were far from God and share the gospel with them and evangelize my fellow drummers in time. I may not know a great deal of what it's like to work in the secular world, but I can, I can look at the example of Joseph and draw upon the, the few experiences that I have had, and I can, I can encourage you, Christian, be the most dependable, the most reliable, the most honest, the hardest working of all of your employer's employees, and you share the gospel and speak the truth of God unmitigated when the timing is right. I'm blown away by the example of Joseph because he's a believer in Yahweh and he's serving under a worshiper of Ra. And he's found favor in that pagan ruler's sight. So Christian, if Joseph could win over the worshiper of the sun god, you can, worship, you can win over those who don't always agree with your worldview. Now, you gotta come back next week. You gotta come back next week and you gotta join your small group and you gotta see whether or not Joseph compromises the truth in front of Pharaoh. Does Joseph water down the truth when it's his time to speak in front of Pharaoh? This is interesting as well because Joseph has just been drafted into the big discussion to weigh in on this moment. He knows, given, given wisdom by the Spirit, he knows the truth, and it is unethical of him to withhold that truth. It would be unethical of him to compromise that truth. Are we talking right now? Do you hear what I'm saying? There were lives on the line as Joseph goes before Pharaoh. So it must have been nerve-wracking, must have been intimidating, but it's up to him in that moment to speak, speak the truth as indicated by the Spirit of God so that people would be saved because the person who was over him didn't hold the same worldview, but he respected Joseph nonetheless. May this be the testimony of Christians and may Christians today in a society whose sense of morality has gone utterly off the rails now more than ever, clearly hold to what God says. Clearly hold to the word of God. Now more than ever, just like Joseph before Pharaoh. So as we close, Christian, if you're, if you're in the pit, would you look around you? Would you see who else is there with you? And would you love them? Would you serve them? Because like Joseph, you don't know if those those people are going to be the key to you getting out of the pit. Show love to the people who are right there where you're at, and you serve diligently right there where you're at. Also, Christian, just as Joseph shared with, shared with the chief baker the horrible news and the great news with the cupbearer, and the mixed news with Pharaoh, Christian, just say what God's word says. Don't adapt it for your audience. Don't try to water it down because you'll answer to the Lord if you do that. 
You will answer to the Lord if you take anything away from what's written in this book. So you proclaim the word of God, say what it says, and stand faithfully by it. Likewise, my friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian, would you be willing to accept the truth of the word of God, whether it edifies you or not? Whether it lifts you up or shows where you stand condemned and shows you the gospel and the way out, shows you the path unto redemption. It is the word of the Lord. He is simply God, so you believe it. Whether you're the cupbearer or the baker, what God has said is true. Acknowledge that. Acknowledge the truth of the word of the Lord. Also, from the story of Joseph, I see a, a beautiful call to just wait upon the Lord. Be strong. You wait upon the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in the due time. He is able. He is able. There's a refining that comes from the pit. Patience can be demonstrated only in seasons like these. So you wait upon the Lord. You take heart. If you're waiting on the big promotion, waiting on your big moment, and you feel like you're just undiscovered and underappreciated, you're going to take all the glory when the big moment comes. Instead, instead, humble yourself before the Lord. Serve him right here where you are. And then give him all the glory, whether the promotion comes or not. You are his, so you trust him. Show yourself trustworthy with a few things, and he'll trust you with many things. Now, to the chief bakers in the room, I've got some news. Hopefully this is not a shock to you, okay? What Joseph said to the chief baker, perhaps not as grim and hopefully not as violent, is just as true for you. You're going to die. The, the stats are pretty consistent on this one. One out of every one people dies. I know it's not comfortable to talk about, but it's true. May I bring to your attention now that which you would prefer to shove to the side, your mortality, the fact that you will die. It is appointed for man once to die and then to stand judgment before the Lord. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Do you know Joseph's God? Would you... Would you be prepared to face Joseph's God today? If the idea of death is unsettling to you, if you, if you look at, the, if you look at the, the chief baker and you say, I'm under the same death sentence and you're frightened, you don't know what happens after that, I have great news for you. I have beautiful news for you. There is a savior and his name is Jesus. There is a savior and his name is Jesus. If you think Joseph's great, you should meet Jesus. He too endured a wrongful imprisonment. He too told people news they didn't want to hear. He too refused to mitigate the truth based on his audience. He too was innocent. And when he was accused, he too was delivered from the pit and glorious resurrection. If you believe this text from Genesis, would you also believe this text from Matthew 28? Look at this. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. And he said, 
Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So we've seen the story of Joseph being brought up out of the pit. Here's the story of Jesus coming up out of the pit. Would you proclaim your belief in Jesus today and be spared the eternal pit? Joseph is a mere shadow and a glimpse of the true one who is Jesus. He is sovereign. He's in charge of all. If you, play, if you profess your faith in him today, you'll be saved. If the Holy Spirit of God is drawn upon your heart right now, would you pray with me right now to be saved? Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God sent into the world so that all who believe in him would be saved and not die. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that the wages of my sin is death. And I believe that the gift of God is eternal life through you, Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God, unto the Father, I proclaim my belief in the Son. Say, Jesus is Lord. Say it out loud right now. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.